is a trucking company meltdown, a cautionary tale for the future. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Deidre Willard here with Motley Fool analyst Bill Barker. How are you today, Bill? Very well, thanks. Let's start with a big story that unfolded over the weekend. Yellow, a large freight trucking company with a 99-year history, they shut down operations. This is interesting because it's as much as 10% of all of the less-than-truckload shipping in the U.S. So, when you think about Yellow, it's also all of the 12,000 trucks and shipping freight for Walmart, Home Depot, some of the other big retailers. What else is happening here? Well, their debt caught up with them, and uh, they were in negotiations uh, with the drivers. It's a union shop, and they could not get to a price that was going to work. Uh, they didn't really have that much freedom uh, on the company side to negotiate higher wages uh, because of all the money they had already borrowed and the covenants. Uh, they had to go to their lenders uh, to get any significant raise approved and and that really wasn't going to happen uh, so negotiations broke down and they really stopped taking new uh, orders the last week and and sort of kept delivering the things that were already in the system but uh, you know their customers uh, fled and then uh, earlier in the month as they lacked confidence in the company and with good reason they they just had too much debt and they were not uh, turning a profit and they had big loan payments coming due soon. Yeah, so there's a couple of things that happened that uh, that Teamsters negotiation that I think uh, like around July 24th is when that sort of broke down. So that's what you mentioned when the customers started leaving. Now they they announced on Friday that they were laying off all of their non-union employees, and then over the weekend they sort of finished up with that. Now it seems like we're waiting for bankruptcy notification. Do you think this is a Chapter 11 and a restructure, or a Chapter 7 and they just try to sell everything off? I'm not sure there there aren't that many details out there. I think that I you know prefer from a capitalist viewpoint to see Chapter Seven. They just weren't a very good capital allocator. They'd been given money to use. Uh, they had employed a lot of people. They delivered uh, products, but they were kind of the low cost and the low uh, reliability provider in in the space. So, I think that there are going to be higher prices across the uh, LTL, less than truckload uh, universe uh, going forward, because sort of everybody else uh, charged a little bit more and was more reliable. I mean, they 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 were more worth as the sort of the the outcome of the market uh, interactions uh, proves. They were worth more money to do the service than than Yellow was. They were just not very you know they they were used by a lot of the people who were looking for the cheapest price, uh, but mm-hmm. you get what you pay for, and, yeah. and that's that's where we are today. Yeah, very true. So. If they're out of the running permanently, is is that a benefit for XPO Logistics, Old Dominion, some of those other companies? Yes. 
<laughs> simple enough. Yes, yeah, simple enough. You take uh, somebody who is uh, able to uh, capture nine, ten percent of the of the market. That's that's down from where it once upon a time was, but still a reasonable percent, third largest player, and you just. Give that business to all of the competitors, say uh, uh, XPO, FedEx, uh, Old Dominion, which is the the real quality uh, player in, in the LTL space. They're all going to benefit. They're all going to be picking up business uh, from this, and they're all going to be able, in the short term, to charge higher prices uh, for. Uh, taking on the business because they've they've got to scramble to be able to fulfill all the uh, demand that's now out there. Well, it's 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 a little bit of good news because the e-commerce sector and the 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 freight sector has been down a little bit. So so maybe that's maybe that's good news for them. Well, it's it's definitely good news for them, uh, and they because things are a little lighter. The economy has shifted more toward. Experiences rather than goods, uh, you know, as, as we've come out of COVID, so there was a little bit of, of slack in the system, and prices had come down, uh, and now they'll they'll go back up. It, you know, it's a it's a cyclical economy there, uh, but the the general economy is is healthy. So there wasn't, uh, you know, this was not a, a particularly bad part of the cycle for for the trucking industry. Uh, it was just a little. A bit lighter than uh, than it had been. Well, part of the story here is the company received a seventy million dollar pandemic loan. Uh, there was a congressional report that came out last month saying the loan was a mistake. Do you think this is going to have any impact on future bailouts? I mean, we're not looking at any other bailouts right now, but we we know the cycle. Eventually, government bailouts will become a question again. Well, you hope that people will will learn from this. Unfortunately, the loan was made uh, during the Trump administration, and the the report was issued by a Republican congressman, French Hill. Uh, he did the writing on it, so there isn't the the extreme level of politics that one might anticipate, where one party is accused of having. Uh, you know, done something that the other party then gets to take a shot at. This is a, a little bit more. Hey, this was done uh, in 2020. It was done at a time where there was a lot, a lot of questions about how things were going to play out. But the size of the loan to Yellow, given its history, it practically went bankrupt in the last recession, uh, 08, 09, and just really didn't have a, a great. Record of of capital allocation, so it wasn't a surprise that they were immediately in trouble uh, in in 2020, and they did uh, do some deliveries for the Department of Defense and Energy. So there, this there was this national security argument to make that their continued existence was critical to national security. Is a bit of a stretch because there are a lot of other companies that did the same work and and were healthier. And in retrospect, it obviously was a mistake because the money is not going to be repaid. So the other story here with that is that uh, the the Teamsters uh, negotiation that we talked about. So bad news for the Teamsters on on this one. It's about twenty two thousand union employees, but it's been a busy summer for the Teamsters. They recently negotiated their contract with UPS. Uh, they seemed like they got a lot of what they wanted. I feel like we've spent a lot of time talking about unions this summer more than we have in a long time. As investors, how how should we be thinking about unions going forward? I know we've got an auto workers uh, negotiation coming up. Seems like unions are in the news a lot lately. 
Yeah, there's, there are a lot of contracts that are coming up, and uh, inflation has been a factor since the previous uh, contracts uh, were entered into. So, there's a very good argument uh, that uh, they have to be uh, wages have to be raised quite a bit. That's a cycle that that ends up potentially uh, extending inflation. Uh, but I, this is sort of an isolated uh, situation. The Teamsters uh, negotiated uh, pretty successfully, I would say, with UPS. I would assume the auto workers, again, uh, although there's a Plenty of cyclicality there. They're in a healthy enough position, uh, which Yellow was just not. Uh, Yellow was uh, had offered, I think, a, a rather significant raise uh, package that that didn't work out, and I don't know that they could have pulled it off anyway, uh, given what they would have to have had approved from their lenders, but. Uh, I, I think that the unions are right now uh, in a reasonably uh, strong position, and that this particular case doesn't really undermine that. With Yellow, one last thing about them is that they were um, they're divesting themselves of Yellow Logistics. They announced this a couple of days before uh, everything finally went down. It's their third-party logistics part. This one sort of seemed like the part of the company that was doing well. It reminded me a little bit of Bed Bath and Beyond, where the Bye Bye Baby part was actually the most interesting part. So. Do you think that Yellow Logistics is going to have a future beyond this? Is is someone going to buy this because it was perhaps the best part of things? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's the valuable asset other than the physical assets of the the tractors and trailers. Right. Uh, it's it's a real business that has a, a good history and it was growing uh, well and is in the middle of the e-commerce uh, sort of revolution and and so somebody's going to pick that up and uh, within bankruptcy protection they'll be able to you know not put this out on a fire sale they'll get a, a reasonable market price from a you know competitive bidding process, I think. Uh, but as a standalone, I, I don't think that it can really go forward uh, given yeah. given the bankruptcy situation. So, yeah, you would expect somebody to buy it and uh, that money to be distributed ultimately to you know the the debt holders. Last, not the shareholders. Let's move on to something a little brighter. Uh, we've got a lot of earnings coming um, this week. Not not so much today, but SoFi's earnings came out today, and this company. I I like this company. You know, about a year ago, my husband said to me, "You wanted an inexpensive stock with potential." We talked about this one. He took a small stake. It didn't go so well for me in the beginning. He gave me a little bit of a hard time about it. Been a bit of a ride, but these earnings were pretty strong. I think maybe I've redeemed myself a little. Uh, members up 44%, products up 43%, revenue up 37%. Seems pretty strong. What do you think? Uh, yeah, are you in position to take a victory lap yet? <laughs> not for, for yet. At home? Not quite yet. <laughs> Definitely not yet. Yeah, it's still, I don't know uh, where you. Uh, Entered, the, it's still about half of its its all time high. It kind of peaked along with all the rest of tech, uh, sort of late 2021. Uh, so, uh, despite the fact that it's had a good good run lately and is at a 52 week high, it's not at an all time high, or it's got to sort of double from here. But it's it's an awfully smooth uh, growth. Uh, 
that they've had. Uh, it, it really is every quarter. It's it's gliding down year over year, 44% for new members. Uh, that's down from 46% the quarter before, 51% the quarter before that, 61% the quarter before that. So that's the law of large numbers that you mm-hmm. expect. Still, forty-four percent growth uh, after you know the, the second quarter, and the year before for the second quarter in terms of members, not revenue, it had grown at sixty-nine percent. So they're adding a lot of members. I think they're in a good position um, in terms of the model, full service, asset light. You know, they don't have branches. They have a stadium named, but they <laughs> yes, don't have they branches. Do. So, so I think that is uh, more the future, particularly for their sort of young affluent clientele. They've gotten uh, away from what they were once upon a time, which was mostly originating student loans. That's mm-hmm. a less than ten percent part of the business now. Uh, so, if you ignore the stock price, uh, the business is doing very well in terms of its growth, other than the fact that it is not yet earning money. Which, given the the age uh, of the company, you can you can excuse, but uh, the profits do have to show up uh, for the stock ultimately to go much further. Yeah, that that is true. Now they they are not profitable. They did cut losses though by by fifty percent. So so they're making progress there, and they are saying they're going to get gap profitable uh, for the fourth quarter. But what what could stand in in the way of that? Uh, of course, the economy. Well, uh, yes. <laughs> the economy looks pretty pretty healthy. Uh, the second quarter GDP numbers out uh, last week, uh, two and a, two and I don't know four tenths, two point four percent growth. I think uh, the early uh, GDP nowcast numbers are stronger than that for the third quarter. But uh, yeah, they need to be originating more loans, so they need a healthy economy, and they need to, I think, be originating the right kind of loans. And their clientele, for the most part, is more affluent, so it's going to be less risky. They securitize and sell off most of the loans. They don't hold on to them. But I think that what would get in the way also could be another expansion of the business beyond the the very full service offerings they have now every time they expand they're taking on some more uh, costs for to, to sort of increase another side of the business that is the thing I find a little uh, concerning or worrying uh, they recently partnered with Expedia on sofi travel uh, they're they're now sort of dipping their toes into the IPO market they were part of the uh, Audity Tech IPO. I worry a little bit that they're going to try to take on too much too soon and kind of, uh, like you just said, spread themselves too thin. Yeah, they have put in their presentation PowerPoint, which you can get on the investor relations side of the uh, of their website if you're interested. And they they talk about you know the products being nine million. Products. I don't. I don't even know what that means exactly. That sounds like accounts, but I think, I th- I think it's accounts. Yeah, <laughs> of all the different kinds of products they have for their membership, I guess. Uh, since they speak in terms of members, it's a lot of different irons in the fire. That is part of the business of being full service. You know, with Expedia, I don't know how much of that uh, really. Uh, 
business they take on is just sort of an outsourced thing. Yeah, more of a partnership. Uh, the IPO market, I get. Uh, they're not really in partnership with Audi. They're just getting some exposure to some of the IPO shares, which they can then offer to their uh, clientele. And the more of those that they can get, I think, uh, the more attractive they're going to be to a certain part of the you know the banking sector that wants exposure to an IPO. Uh, that's that's reserved for the most part to uh, other uh, you know higher net worth individuals. So uh, you're not going to be able to get that much of an exposure through them, I don't think. But you, it, the feeling of having some is probably attractive to a certain part of their business. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense because it seems like they're trying to be the younger, cooler version of of a big bank with some of those uh, big bank characteristics. Yeah, and uh, they offer more services than many of the big banks, uh, and that is potentially going to involve more costs, but they make up for that by not having the branches. So, to the extent that they maintain a efficient, uh, lean web website and, and app, uh, they're in position to ultimately uh, profit and profit uh, quickly if they continue to scale for another year or two above 20 or 30% growth. Well, we started off with talking about a company that is in debt. Let's end with one. I think we might have a new meme stock on our hands. Uh, a new meme, an old name, Tupperware. Uh, back in April, they filed an 8K saying they might not be able to continue as a going concern. They were you know, trading under a dollar. It's got a hundred around seven hundred million in debt. It's it's you know it's not not looking good. But all of a sudden, the last couple of days, it went meme stock. It went about uh, tripled in a couple of days, trading around uh, three dollars a share. Uh, so now it's not in danger of being delisted. But this isn't one I would touch with anybody's money. What about you? No, I think we've seen this movie before. It's not uh, quite as doomed an enterprise, I would say, seemingly. I mean, it's got brand value and it's got products that people actually use and pay for. It's just taken on way too much debt and they're not not a well-run have not been a well-run company. Uh, but there, there's a there's a core business there that's going to survive a brand that's going to survive. It's just with the debt involved, it's probably worth pretty close to zero, and the market had gotten there, and now it's been captured by the the meme crowds, and the stock might go anywhere in in the short term, uh, given the short squeeze capacity of of some people to uh, especially given how how low the market cap is it's still under 200 million yeah. uh, so you know if, if you get enough people uh, acting in concert with each other you might be able to uh, get this this sort of wild ride and get out at the right point before it ultimately collapses back down to what it deserves to be at which is something close to zero yeah, not 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 a game I like to play. I do hope the brand itself survives, even even if the company doesn't. I yes, the brand has value, so it'll the the brand will survive and the products will survive. Uh, they'll just be elsewhere, I think. <laughs> Indeed. Thanks for your time today, Bill. Good Thank to chat you. with you. Often 
hear things like, boomers are out of touch, Gen Z is lazy, why do we pit generations against each other? Best-selling author and business professor Mauro Gian tackles this way of thinking in his new book, The Perennials. I sat down with him to discuss the future of aging. Retirement age, uh, it's become kind of controversial lately. Uh, we had that fight in France happening over raising the retirement age. You pointed out in the book that uh, the retirement age in, in China is is quite a bit younger than, than it is here in the U.S. How can individuals and governments really kind of rethink retirement and retirement age in particular? Yeah. Well, first of all, the French have actually no excuse to protest because on average they retire at age 62 or 63, whereas here in the United States on average we retire at age 69 or 70, and in Japan even later. So the French of all people in the world uh, actually have it already quite good, right? Because they retire relatively early. But you know, retirement has been oversold. Retirement uh, stifles your mind. Retirement, you know, um, disconnects you from your social circles. Now that we live much, much longer, right, it doesn't make any sense to be in retirement since you're age 60 or 65. Uh, the issue here is that uh, we need to find ways uh, for companies and other organizations not to discriminate against people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s so that, they can, so that they can continue to work if they wish to do so. A separate problem, of course, is pensions. We've made some uh, promises to people that they could be, will be able to collect a public pension. Um, if they worked a number of years. And uh, of course, when people retire, then they have a claim on that pension. And now that we're living longer, that is putting a lot of financial pressure on Social Security in the US and similar schemes around the world. So we, we certainly need to rethink that. Uh, we need to encourage people to save money uh, besides their state pension. And uh, we need people to also consider working a little bit longer if they choose to do so. I wouldn't uh, mandate it, but I would provide people with the opportunity to do so if that's what they want to do. Yeah, it's not just uh, public pensions, it's uh, private pensions as as well for certain organizations is also a concern. And when you, when you talk about working longer, one of the things you talk about in the book is that most people have three careers, maybe even four careers, and, and that retraining becomes part of our lives, which I think it's happening now, but I don't think it's happening at the scale, perhaps, that it might. It makes me think about some of the... It, people that are perhaps in industries that are hard on the body, like a construction or uh, truck driving or things like that. How do you see that multi-career focus playing out for people in, in different types of careers? So, so this, is the, this trend is, as you said, incipient. So we only have in the United States, for example, maybe five or 6% of people switch careers, not switch jobs, but rather switch careers. So they were teachers and they become programmers, right? I think that trend is gonna continue for two very important reasons. One is that the economy constantly changes. And maybe when you were 20 years old, you made the wrong decision as to which career to pursue. So you should have a chance at age 40 to essentially switch careers, right? Uh, the other reason, of course, is uh, that technological change is making some careers careers uh, less attractive uh, and uh, it's making the jobs disappear. So now with AI, it's not just a manual labor, but it's also cognitive labor. And we're going to see much more of this. So in other words, we need to help uh, people make transitions in life in a more flexible way, including the transition to another career. And that will require, as you said, lifelong learning. Now, as to physical workers, uh, there's an, a limit as to for how long you can be a construction worker, for example. And typically what companies in those, uh, or people in those uh, occupations have done is they, uh, they become self-employed uh, or they run a consulting business for construction or they stay at the company, but uh, they become record keepers or they do some, perform some other kind of work as opposed to physical uh, work. 
So we need to again, uh, you know, offer uh, much more flexibility uh, for those people who are in, in physical occupations. Because yes, I mean, once you turn 50 or 55, it, it becomes really difficult to continue being a construction worker, for example. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the age of, of those industries uh, keeps going up. So reframing education seems to be something really important here. Uh, in the book, you touched on the idea that we're we're not really preparing young people for for the future because we can't prepare them for jobs that uh, potentially don't even exist yet. So as as education becomes spread out through your life, how do you think that changes the beginning of the educational experience? Yeah, well, I think uh, you know the education sector, and I've uh, worked in it uh, for my entire life. Uh, is the slowest one to change. I mean, we, you know, everybody should blame us because uh, not just uh, schools, but also universities, we change very, very slowly. And as you said, we should be changing in terms of what are the jobs of, uh, you know, the future in 20 years from now, as opposed to the uh, rapidly growing job or occupations today, right? Um, so I think uh, the online revolution with all of the new competition that is uh, entering the education sector, I think that's going to be a big uh, revulsive for uh, a lot of uh, established universities and schools to uh, innovate, to become, uh, you know, so much more open to new formats of learning and so on and so forth. And also keep in mind that younger people today learn in a very different way than the way that you and I uh, used to learn, right? Uh, they like more interactive teaching, they like uh, digital, they like multimedia, and so on and so forth. So the education sector has to change big way, big time, because otherwise uh, it's gonna be very difficult for people to adapt to uh, all of these economic and technological changes. Yeah, so you see the future as uh, education is of being sort of more collaborative and less sort of lecture driven. Absolutely, because look, when you take a look at here in the United States, what are the kinds of skills that employers are requiring? Well, they do require, of course, certain technical skills, right? I mean, maybe, you know, accounting skills or uh, math skills or uh, whatever other kind of technical knowledge. But in addition to that, they're also requiring social skills, and we don't teach them that well. So what do I mean by social skills? I mean the ability to work in teams. I mean the ability to negotiate. I mean uh, emotional intelligence. Uh, and so on and so forth. So those social skills are very important at work and actually companies select people on the basis of those skills, uh, but we don't teach them well at school or in university. Yeah, that, that is absolutely true. And one of the things you talked about too is the idea that a lot of people of all ages sort of want to work for younger bosses these days, which I, which I found was interesting. Yeah, there's uh, that. Uh, increasingly, more and more people have a boss who is younger. And uh, this, of course, is, uh, has been very typical in the tech sector. But it's spreading now throughout uh, uh, all of the industries in the economy. And then the other uh, phenomenon is reverse mentoring. So it used to be the case that the mentor would be somebody older than the uh, recipient of that mentorship. But now we have two-way mentoring going on in so many organizations. So those are really, really important changes. So again, I mean, age is becoming less and less relevant, as you can see, in the workplace, right? Less and less relevant. And that's why I think it's important to emphasize, Deirdre, that the book is not just for people who are, you know, uh, approaching 50 or 60 uh, years old. Uh, it's also for younger people so that they can make the right choices early on in their lives. As we get away from uh, the, the sequential generation idea, does the attitude around investing change in general? Because traditionally, we've, we've all been taught to save for retirement, to make money when you're young, to, to sort of head toward that goal. If what you're talking about, and we get away from this idea of these sort of like age segments in life, does that change how people should be thinking about their money the whole way through? I think yes and no. Um, so no, because I think it's a still a very good habit 
to save for retirement. So uh, whenever I talk to people who are in their late 20s, early 30s, they've got their first job uh, or their second job, and I always tell them, uh, take advantage of all of the tax incentives uh, if you put money in savings accounts. Uh, be wise. Uh, it's never going to be enough money. You also have to uh, you know, perhaps uh, do other things to uh, have a, a good retirement. But uh, the answer is also yes, that things are going to change, because uh, as I was uh, telling you earlier, I think that we need to fundamentally rethink retirement. And I think full retirement, you know, that you're 100% not working, meaning you have 100% of your time for leisure, I don't think it's a good idea, uh, let's say, uh, from the time you're 65 until you're 95. So for 30 years, because life expectancy has grown so much, exactly. It's like almost another lifetime. So I think um, most people, slowly but surely, will gravitate towards a formula in which they, they work a little bit and they make some money, uh, but they also have a lot more of leisure. And uh, above everything else, they have a lot of flexibility. So now with, for example, remote work, this is appealing to a lot of retirees because they hated commuting. A lot of people retire or want to retire because of commuting. But now more and more jobs don't require commuting, or at least uh, they don't require it every day. So I think things are changing very quickly. And we're going to see, I think, a future in which people are going to be in semi-retirement or in hybrid retirement, if you want to put it that way. I think that's true. One of the things I've noticed is um, a lot of the Uber drivers I've had have been re retired, and I asked them, you know, do you have to do this, or, or you know, or are you doing this for fun? And a lot of times they're doing it. They they like the extra money, but they have money coming in from from their investments or from Social Security or pension. But they they like the money because they feel like they can spend this money more easily, and they like the interaction. They like to have stories. Exactly right. Exactly right. They can chat to people. They they have something to do. I mean, to spend 30 years, okay, 30 years in retirement without working or without volunteering your time, it's like, a, it's almost like a prison sentence, right? It's like you're, you're sent, you've been sentenced to retirement, to be in isolation, to have nothing to do. I don't think that is healthy. I don't think that's good. And that is the opposite of the way it is sold to people. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and this is again an American thing. It's like, you're supposed to be successful in life, right? Uh, if you can retire early, like at age 40. And I think we have to get rid of that, that cliche. Uh, it's, I think it's very damaging, and uh, I don't think uh, it is the best option for most people. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Willard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.